can, we can, we can demolish 40 beers. Cause Tolly Rome, drink Rome, drink Rome all day and come along with us. Oh, we don't give a damn for any old man who don't give a damn for us. From the Harvard Square Tea Station to the MIT Kendall Station, Cambridge, Massachusetts is, unlike the novel by Charles Dickens, a tale of two subway stops. Between them exists these two almost separate ecosystems. In one, Harvard University, an institution with the focus on intellectual growth and nurturing its students. And in the other, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, only a brief eight-minute metro ride away, a place founded in a more practical, get-the-job-done kind of attitude. Even the architecture between these two universities is distinct. Harvard is a place with countless red-brick buildings, high Ivy League ceilings, and medieval architecture themes. And MIT, on streets lined with geometric, often minimalistic, high-tech architecture where countless innovations are being discovered every day. It's a place unlike anything else. When I think about what it felt like being in the Media Lab, talking to everyone at this conference, and the discussions and debates I'd had the luck of witnessing, one word comes to mind. Complete and utter awe. It seemed like one of the most promising areas to bring artists and philosophers together along with cutting-edge computer scientists who understand the deep, technical side of these issues. And the conference also represented the joint efforts of Jonathan Zittrain, a Harvard University law professor and the founder of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, and Joey Ito, the director of the MIT Media Lab. One of the most amazing aspects of this conference, aside from the already highly sophisticated conversations on the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence, was ultimately its diversity. Most of the time, when we think about what the field of AI research looks like, we tend to picture a few types of people, and these are the types of people who are supposed to be studying AI, or at least those that we suspect to. All right, just a few more feet, and here we are, gentlemen. The gates of Elzebub. Good Lord. Don't panic. This is what the last 97 hours have been about. Now stay frosty. There's a horde of armed goblins on the other side of that gate guarding the Sword of Azeroth. In reality, however, the field of artificial intelligence research is much more multidisciplinary than what meets the eye. And this conference showcased that. While I was in Cambridge, I did meet computer scientists and programmers, but I also met fascinating professors of philosophy, civil rights activists, representatives from the UN, and people from countless other areas. Even the two co-founders of this conference, professors Jonathan Zittrain and Joey Ito, defy what someone in AI has to be or look like. Jonathan being a professor of computer science, on top of being a highly distinguished professor of international and internet law at Harvard Law School. And Joey being a visiting law professor at Harvard Law School on top of being the head of the MIT Media Lab. Of all the fascinating people I met at this conference, one voice seemed to me to raise some of the most urgent concerns about autonomous systems. And their name is Cade Crockford. My name is Cade Crockford. I'm the director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts, and I fight for your digital rights. 
If the goal is to find people who are experts in the fields touched by autonomous systems, to have a dialogue and create some kind of framework to establish guidelines for artificial intelligence systems in such a way that they don't infringe upon the civil rights or free will of those who are subject to their influence, who better to talk to than a civil rights advocate? After all, what would a committee like this even be if the guidelines it set were not for the benefit of all the people it served? Cade Crockford serves as the director for the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts, in addition to being a director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab. And according to their bio at the ACLU, Cade works to essentially protect and expand core First and Fourth Amendment rights and civil liberties in the digital 21st century, focusing on how systematic culminations of surveillance and control not only impact society at large, but groups that have traditionally been targeted people of color, immigrants, and dissidents. For the body like the one that we are proposing, a complete dedication to protect and maintain civil rights is of the highest priority. So, allow me to officially introduce you to someone whose voice needs to be heard on a committee for cyber rights. But you, you currently serve as the, um, and, and correct me if I misspeak, but the director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what that program is, what it does, and what your role is within it. Sure. Um, the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts aims to ensure that core civil rights and civil liberties protections are protected in the era of uh, digital age and um, automation and big data you know, now I guess we can also add AI and machine learning and other buzzwords to that um, description. So what does that mean? Well, um, historically, it has meant that we have focused a lot since the, the program was born five years ago on pretty basic stuff, like making sure that law enforcement agencies have to get warrants to track the physical locations of our cell phones. Um, talking to state and local communities about law enforcement's use of technologies like license plate readers to conduct dragnet surveillance and figuring out what the appropriate policy regulation or law should be to govern law enforcement's use of those types of surveillance tools. So the first question I have is, I guess, you personally and and especially... Um, someone coming from your field in civil rights advocacy, how do you tend to define artificial intelligence? Um, this is a funny question, you know. Uh, I think people who work in computer science, um, I've heard many people who work in computer science deflect this question because, um, I mean, AI as a field of computer science basically involves training machines to think effectively, to come up with their own um, ways of understanding problems and to react to information by producing ways of thinking and new insights. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know that the, the definition of artificial intelligence is actually all that important um, in these conversations. I really like what Joey Ito talks about. He uses the phrase extended intelligence, which I think is actually a lot more helpful 
and a lot easier for folks to understand because the the term artificial, the word artificial, suggests that whatever system, whether it's you know an image recognition system, a face recognition system, um, the technology that you know companies have developed to challenge master chess and go players none of those systems are artificial in the sense that they came to be independent of human thought or action right mm-hmm. those are really just systems that as joe ito says extend human intelligence they are systems that are built by human beings um, using algorithms and code that are written and tested by human beings and trained on data that is compiled, chosen and compiled by human beings. So, you know, I think that the phrase artificial intelligence can be a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when people think about artificial intelligence, they a lot of people, I think, think about a robot. What we're really talking about are systems that are built by human beings with human biases and, you know, everything else that goes along with what it means to be a human being. I like Joey's conception of the extension of intelligence into these machines and through these machines instead of the, the concept of an artificial intelligence, which almost feels alien, right? Like it seems like it could be even something that comes down from Mars and is totally foreign um, to human to human beings and to life on Earth, and it, it really the truth could not be farther from that. Yeah, I think like the term extended intelligence wouldn't necessarily produce the same level of I guess like undue fear as artificial intelligence does because also with extended intelligence, I think you have maybe we have more responsibility for it and more of a like connection to these systems rather than them just being this like separate alien entity. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of why we should use the phrase extended intelligence, because as you've said, that phrase carries with it acknowledging and amplifying our responsibility for these systems, the decisions that they make, the impacts that those decisions have on other human beings. So... I'm curious, how did you find an interest in, in this subject, like in artificial intelligence and its governance and the civil rights implications of it? Um, and also, were you always interested in this field? And if not, what potentially drew you to these issues? I was not always interested in this, no. Um, I came to the ACLU uh, about almost 10 years ago initially to study what are called fusion centers. So they're basically state and local law enforcement spy agencies that were set up in the post 9-11 era by the Department of Homeland Security all across the country. So um, I come to this, frankly, through the lens of thinking about power. Um, You know, I work for a civil liberties organization, but before I came to the ACLU, I was a researcher and an activist and an organizer. And I've long been obsessed, I guess you could say, with thinking about power, thinking about where power comes from, how to manipulate it, how to um, get out of its way when necessary. Um, And I think that, you know, it's it's sort of a natural extension of my interest in power that I'm now doing work related to 
governance and AI and thinking about how new technologies can be integrated into human society. What do you see um, as being one of the main issues or potentially the biggest obstacles that you have dealt with um, in your field with respect to artificial intelligence and these systems and their underlying implications? I'm going to choose three. One is that too often computer scientists and engineers who make these technologies do not want to be held responsible for the consequences that their technologies produce for human beings. The second one is that people who do not work in technology or think about these issues very much tend to assume that decisions made by a computer or by code are more reliable or free of bias or you know somehow have almost like a godlike shimmer of authority and that's a real problem and the third thing i think is that everyone whether they're you know computer scientists or not or I should say most people, tend to have a view that certain things are inevitable when it comes to AI's, you know, dominance in the 21st century, that it is inevitable that we will be ranked by a system like Facebook. Um, It is inevitable that governments from the local level all the way up to the federal level will be using persistent tracking tools like face surveillance technology and that privacy and anonymity in public will just be totally eradicated. That it's inevitable that you know police departments will be using predictive policing software that was trained on historically problematic racist data, frankly, and spits out recommendations that are therefore also racist mm-hmm. uh, for law enforcement in the present I think that, you know, those are the those are the main three problems for me. On the tech side, a lot of people who frankly just don't want to deal with the consequences socially and politically of the technologies that they're producing, folks who are outside of the tech world who tend to trust technology in a way that I think is really dangerous, and third, the idea that the sort of technological determinism that says there's nothing we can do to sort of slow the the spread of progress almost, and that technology has to be involved in making decisions in each area of our lives, that it's guaranteed to happen. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Uh, I guess those are the three biggest issues that I see for us. What insights do you think that you and people like you would have to offer, like a hypothetical AI regulatory body? I would really hope that a group of people brought together to perform some sort of AI regulatory function would try to be as inclusive as possible. And by that, I mean inviting people into the conversation who are not experts, inviting people into the conversation who are experts about their own lives and are experts in the sense that they are people who are acted upon by Mm. these systems. Mm -hmm. So any system that aims to regulate how artificial intelligence is used in the healthcare world, for example, must include healthcare advocates, advocates for people with developmental disabilities, advocates for, you know, people who have long-term illnesses that are debilitating, advocates for people who have serious intellectual disabilities. So I think, you know, and, and the same is true of any work on algorithms in the criminal legal system. I think there's 
a sort of default position that groups like the ACLU can stand in for communities of color who have been the targets of mass incarceration and over-policing in the United States. And that's not true. You know, we are we are a lot of things. We're bright. We have great ideas. But the, the true experts of mass incarceration are the people who are locked up. And I think that, you know, any regulatory agency worth its salt is going to have to figure out a way to not only bring experts to the table, experts in the sense that they know constitutional law or they understand how computer science systems work, but experts in the very field of real life decision making that is uh, under discussion by, by whatever regulatory you know, agency we create. The next question I wanted to ask Cade was about the issue of transparency, or I guess the lack thereof in proprietary algorithms. Is that as a representative for these civil rights advocacy agencies like the ACLU, how are you guys able to even demand that transparency when it, you know these systems are largely owned by private corporations who do have intellectual property rights? What does the fight look like now, given that, I guess, situation? You know, ultimately, it's up to, to courts to decide what is constitutional and what the Constitution requires of, you know, government agencies that are using these proprietary tests in criminal prosecutions. Um, but there are also cases on the civil side, so not even uh, criminal cases in which courts have held that, yes, actually, private companies that are engaged with government agencies are required to disclose information to the public under certain circumstances about how they make decisions about how their um, proprietary algorithms, quote unquote, work. There's an example of this in a case in Idaho, which is really interesting. Uh, The ACLU of Idaho was receiving all of a sudden hundreds of phone calls from people all across the state who were upset because all of a sudden their Medicaid reimbursement payments had declined sharply, um, payments from the state had declined mm-hmm. sharply. And they were freaking out because these are people who need med- their Medicaid payments in order to live in the state of Idaho. So the ACLU finally looked into this issue, and what they discovered was that the state of Idaho, likely in a bid to save money, had begun using an algorithm, a proprietary algorithm, to determine benefit reimbursements for folks with developmental disabilities, adults with developmental disabilities. And what they found, they, they asked the Department of Public Health in the state of Idaho for information about how they were making these determinations, the government said, you don't have a right to that because it's proprietary algorithm. The ACLU sued and a court agreed with the ACLU and said, no, 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 no. You have to give the public information about how you are making these Medicaid reimbursement determinations. And so they did. And the ACLU had an independent expert examine these systems and basically found out that it was like totally junk science, that effectively Mm -hmm. the algorithm merely existed to cut people's benefits. You know, there was no rhyme or reason to the system whatsoever. And after having gained that transparency, the ACLU was able to fight for its clients to get their payments effectively um, reversed so that they they had the money that they needed to take care of themselves. Wow, wow. So, you know, in some cases, courts are going to come down on the side of transparency here and say, well, if you're a private entity doing business with the government, 
you may be required at some point to disclose information that you claim is proprietary because it's being used by a government agency to make these consequential decisions such as you know in the in the criminal legal system in the courts or in this case in in the healthcare system mm-hmm. so really quickly my final question to you is kind of like a, a hypothetical question i guess <laughs> So Marvin Minsky, the founder of the MIT Media Lab, has these, he has many, many quotes, but two of them I am very interested in. Um, And it's, as artificial intelligence is popularized, Minsky has said that robots will either be our children, or that if we're lucky, they might decide to keep us as pets. So I was wondering, with all of your research at this current moment, and your perspective on this issue... Which direction do you think we're going in? You know, I disagree with Minsky. I think that, if anything, AI systems, nearly at this point at least, are exacerbating existing inequalities among human beings. So I think that, for example, right now, you know, given the absolutely horrific levels of economic inequality that exists in the United States and worldwide, it's totally conceivable to to think that today... (laughs) robots are the children of some people and that for others they're effectively being kept as pets so i you know i I don't see these concepts as mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. i think that again you know my interest in science and in ai and in computer science fundamentally relates to my interest in power and systems of power and given my understanding of human history up until the present I can't imagine that those are mutually exclusive concepts. I think that for some people, robots will be their children, and for others, people will be kept as pets by robots. It just it just all depends on the human relationships that already exist. Right, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, but the extreme disparities with respect to access to power, access to wealth, access to information and knowledge that exists in this country and across the world today. Wow. Okay. Um, thank you so much. In order to discuss the ethical and social implications of artificial intelligence systems, or in this case, extended intelligence systems, we have to first analyze and dissect the structures of power that have currently or have historically existed in our society. Only then can we even begin to contextualize why certain people are in control of these tools and have AI as their children and why others are preyed upon by these tools and serve as the pets. The social and ethical implications of artificial intelligence do not exist in a vacuum, and neither does the discussion about them. Only once we contextualize the history of our society can we even begin to think about the idea of regulation. Civil rights activists not only generally campaign for the ideals of fairness and equality around the world, but as Kate explains in the world of AI, They do much more. They make us realize that we cannot look to these new tools and innovations as being godlike or independent from the flaws of our human society. They force us to reflect upon the already cemented power structures in our world that provide the basis for these innovations to manifest in the ways that they have. In other words, civil rights activists and people generally in that world need a seat at this table because they work to force us to reconcile with our history and recognize the power structures that presently exist in our society, 
to pave the way for and guide the innovation and proliferation of these systems in the future, all in an effort to maintain a level of fairness and dignity to all.